Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Curtis Douglas. Curtis is a Phoenix, Arizona-based producer who's worked with Sundressed, The Main, Catastro, This Century, and a whole ton more. We get into his philosophies about making records and lots of interesting topics. I implore you to, after you check out this episode, go check out his Noise Creators profile. There is his discography, a Spotify playlist, a bio, and a whole lot more. Before we get into this, I want to remind you that my new book, Processing Creativity, The Tools, Practices, and Habits Used to Make Music You're Happy With, is out now. If you enjoy this podcast, you enjoy this conversation, I guarantee you'll like this book. It's out on ebook, physical book, and audiobook. Please check it out and go to processingcreativitybook.com to get more info. Without further ado, here's Curtis and me chatting about making music. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones, and if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? My chain today is a RE20 into a Chandler TG2500 into the Inward Connections Brute. Very nice. I've been eyeing that Brute. It is a serious piece of gear for sure. It's not as fast as I would like it to be, but it's awesome. And in conjunction with a really fast compressor, it sounds just about as good as anything out there. Very rad. So uh, tell me about your background in music. I loved music from a young age, just like everyone. I was really into musicals and like Disney soundtracks and stuff like that at a you know at a young age I was kind of always like running around the house singing those and at at like nine or ten I kind of discovered blues and blues guitar and and uh, I used to make fake guitars and run around the house with fake cardboard guitars and I think my parents kind of eventually felt bad for me <laughs> and uh, hook, hooked me up with a real guitar and I piddled around on that um, for a couple years till high school. And then I had like a family friend who was going to college come stay with us here in Phoenix. And he taught me some, a bunch of scales and he would come into my room and be like, hey, harmonize with me. And I kind of was like, oh, this is addicting. This is kind of like a real life video game. And yeah, just kind of it snowballed from there. And I remember 
at one point having just like a really old Shure microphone and figured out how to connect it directly to my sound card and my PC when I was like 13 or 14. And uh, as soon as I as soon as I figured out how to get audio into my computer, mm-hmm. I invited and I invited a band over and I was like, let's record, like let's make a record. It, you know, my efforts weren't particularly fruitful at that point, um, but it just kind of turned into a full fledged addiction. Like I'm sure you're, uh, you know, akin to. Absolutely. So, so what happens from there? You know, I started writing a lot of my own music, and at that point, um, this is probably 2005, and there just wasn't that many people recording. There was like really big studios, and then you know, I that was there was me with like the Mbox One, the very first one that stood on end. Totally, I had one, yeah. And I actually still have it somewhere, just kind of for fun. But there wasn't that many people recording at all, and so I just kind of got pushed into the role of recording all of the bands from my high school and all of the bands from the local high schools and even middle schools and stuff and just kind of snowballed from there and every band that would come in I would you know try to charge a little bit more and you know build up a gear collection and I remember the first really nice thing I bought was an API 3124 Mm. I think I might have been 14 and I I still I'm sitting in front of that pre right now but I still use that every day and um, yeah just I kept learning new things every single band and you know that was just kind of like the the MySpace era where uh, you know like things got way more connected all of a sudden so I was just getting hit up from all over you know like thank god my mom was fine with having these smelly high school and college age kids <laughs> around and, and just I I kind of had this set to say a little bit later, but I basically unwilling, you know, my mom unwillingly let me turn my whole house into a recording studio. Wow. <laughs> kind of like she'd go away on vacation and I'd turn my, uh, turn my walk-in closet into a vocal booth and not tell her about it. <laughs> uh, and then she'd like want to put my clothes away and I'd be like, Oh no, don't worry. I'll get it. <laughs> um, and That's then, funny. you know, she, yeah. So she let me kind of take over, which was really awesome of her. In retrospect, I can't believe that she let me do that. But I also am, uh, you know, of course, very appreciative. Uh, that's pretty rad. I, I mean, I definitely had support, supportive parents as well, and uh, it helps a lot. So is there is that where you still are? Do you have your own studio now? What, what What's going on with that? As far as current studio, that I've had many uh, incarnations of the studio. I moved out of my mom's place when I was 17, and I started working at a studio in Tempe, uh, just just outside of Phoenix called Border Studios. And I worked there for a couple years. And um, it was a kind of a practice. I mean, I was 16, 17 at that time. And it was a practice space. And some really cool bands practiced there, like Scary Kids, Scaring Kids, and Bless the Fall. And uh, I ended up doing all like a bunch of pre-production for them, which was just like way above my head at that age. But that's kind of where I really started cutting my teeth there and just going for it. And that was just really cool getting to work with, you know, way bigger bands um, than I was expecting to at that time, for sure. And since then, I lived in Austin for a couple years and I was working, you know, with a lot of Austin musicians. Um, randomly quick offshoot, my next door neighbor was Eric Johnson's bass player. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I, I did a couple things for him and um, just kind of bounced around. But now, cur- currently, um, at, I'm at a studio uh, also in Tempe called Red Mountain Studios. And it's just a private studio that's in a machine shop. 
and the owner, Rick Erickson, who's just an awesome guy, um, had built the studio in the 90s, and it's just an awesome build-out, and it was just kind of sitting here collecting dust, and um, through some mutual friends, I stumbled across it, and uh, yeah, I just really lucked out and have this awesome place to uh, to lay my head for now. That's really rad. So aside from it being in a machine shop, can you tell me something that makes it unique? Yeah, oh yeah. Um, so it was built in the 90s, and if we're talking just decor, it looks very 90s. There's lots of turquoise and uh, very Southwest themed. Um, but it is the the real defining thing is there's two two full size control rooms and they're both huge. And there's three like fairly large sized isolation booths and uh, a big live room, 15 foot ceilings. You know, in the 90s when they built this place, they uh, brought in a bunch of studio designers when that was still like a good paying gig and everything. And um, yeah, they built this place up nice, and I kind of just get to uh, reap the benefits of all their hard work. But yeah, just it kind of sat here dormant for about 10 years. Really, no one was using it. Um, and when I came in, there was treadmills in here as storage, and there was lots of stuff. And I've been here for about four years and have definitely uh, cleaned it out. And um, it's just a really nice place. Totally lucky to be here. Very, very cool. What's one of the coolest pieces of gear you have there? So... <laughs> The cool thing to me is there's a Yamaha Baby Grand in here, mm. and uh, Rick, the owner of the studio um, and the building and everything uh, with it, he takes great care of it. He gets it tuned every like month or two. He always asks when I'm going to be using it, and he brings in some people to uh, you know keep up the maintenance on it. So that's kind of a cool thing, and it's just smacked up in the middle of the live room. And I can it's on wheels, so I can move it around. But I I've used it so much more than I ever would have expected some other cool things i guess just if we're talking gear is um i got some old calrex like the eq pre yeah thing, totally. and, uh, i love the eq on that especially for like kick drum i mean it's it's pretty awesome little thing and yeah i mean we got a lot of cool stuff but i think those are like the most unique things and got some old like actual brent averill 1272s and nice you know, just a, a bunch of nerdy stuff. We won't get too nerdy on it. <laughs> cool. What instruments do you play? Um, primary instrument is guitar, kind of like I had mentioned earlier, and I had fiddled around on that for a long time. And um, then I got kind of involved pretty heavily in theory when I was when my family friend came to town um, and it was teaching me scales and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I kind of uh, took it way further and um, did just a bunch of self-training on theory and... Um, now I, you know, get all the way up into the modes and all the nerdy stuff. Um, so when you, so when you say self-training, what, what does that look like for the audience? Oh, just, um, you know, just surrounding myself with the best musicians I can and saying, hey, wh you know, how does this chord, chord substitution work? You know, um, what are this, you know, chord and scale degrees? Let's talk about the circle of fifths. Let's, you know, just as much music theory as I could get at a young age because I wasn't able to, you know, at 14, 15, wasn't able to necessarily um, take any college chord courses or anything on it but just totally. as much youtubing and internet research as i could do and just kind of just trying to immerse myself in the theory of it which i'm i'm thankful for now of course very cool so is that it for um instruments you play so with the theory kind of came along just like anything with strings like a bass or a banjo um, i've got a couple banjos i've got you know plethora of guitars and basses and yeah anything with strings i'm fairly proficient at um i've just through doing this for so long i've played drums on a couple records and um i'm a midi professor so i 
I'm fairly proficient at the piano and programming things. It's generally more drawing things in or playing a chord at a time kind of here and there. Um, but the theory kind of just helps me, you know, at least get where I'm going. Very rad. So how involved, we have like kind of this thing on the podcast where we say, on one side, there's like a Steve Albini who just like comments like, you know, he's not even going to comment on your takes. He's just going to get good sounds. And then there's John Feldman who's going to fully rewrite the band songs. Do you see yourself on a spectrum there most often? I do. And to me, I would say I'm particularly close to the John Feldman camp, just in the sense that I like to kind of pull the fifth Beatle approach. I like to, you know, mentally join that band and, you know, give as many opinions as I can while, you know, never being pushy and always allowing the artist to be, you know, who and what they want. I think sometimes, especially bands that haven't recorded much or don't record themselves, they don't know the possibilities and mm -hmm. they don't know how, how far things can go. And I think sometimes just expressing that certain things are a possibility and that things can be bigger than they imagined kind of opens some doors. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I definitely try to get in there and, and um, I like to think that my main strength is like chord over melody, you know, vocal melody and production. So um, if I hear something um, in there that I think is weird, I, I would say something and say, you know, could this be better? And I always, I always make the joke of there's this comedian, I think it was a, a Chris Rock movie where he says, hey, uh, every time a plane crashes, how come they only find the black box? Why don't they just make the whole plane out of the black box? Mm -hmm. And uh, I always kind of just say, hey, like, let's make the whole song out of the black box. Like, if parts of this song are badass and they're just untouchable and we know some of the parts of this song aren't as good as they could be, why should we settle? And, and let you know, let's make the whole song the black box and just make it, you know, indestructible. That is really rad. I like that a lot. So what do you think you bring to records most often? I First off, I like to think that I bring just, like, a sense of confidence and and um you know just keeping the band uh calm and you know it's, it's easy to get flustered in the studio and i think having someone um at the controls that just can look at things from an outside viewpoint and really look at the whole picture and not get caught up in something small is something i like to bring to the table and just yeah you know if, if you're confident the band feels more confident um it just ends up running smoother i also you know, especially in more recent records, the past like four or five years, um, I, I do do a fair bit of writing. And lots of times um, bands kind of come in with unfinished demos on purpose, um, especially bands that I've worked with in the past. And, you know, it works out cool. So where I, I feel really attached to the songs and I feel like I kind of put my stamp on them. And uh, yeah, I just feel like the writing is kind of like a big portion of it for me. And I, I love the writing and love uh, being involved in the songwriting and um you know, extensive pre-production and stuff like that. So I would say, if anything, I just kind of bring the fine tooth, fine tooth comb and, you know, really am not afraid to get in there and go over things. I like that. What's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? Okay, so the biggest mistake that I see um, bands making before they get in the studio is not talking about the songs before they get in here. I mean, there's so many times where I see a band come in and then the bass player is like, wait, that's the chord? Or, <laughs> oh, that's what's going on here? Like, I never knew you were playing that at the in the practice space where we're all blaring so loud that we can't hear one another. I had no idea that I couldn't, you know, I didn't hear that note or I've been playing the wrong note the whole time. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I see that really often or where a drummer will be like, oh, that's not the kick drum pattern I'm playing. I don't know why you're playing that on bass or oh, I'm not picking on bass players. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, just 
I guess just not um, going over the music enough. And also a really big mistake that I see happen a lot is band members that don't speak up until they're in here. Mm. So we'll start working on a song and someone will just say, you know what, I don't, I never really liked the song. Why are we doing this song? And then they'll, a band argument will happen or, you know, um, I think just communication before they get in here, musical, you know, musically communicating Mm-hmm. And just communicating on the songs, uh, you know, I can't even count how many times someone's like, oh, I, I hate that lyric. I can't believe you're saying that and little things like that. I'm like, well, you guys should have voiced your opinions before you you know, got here. Um, I don't mind spending the time to make sure everyone's happy. And actually, I prefer it just to keep uh, morale high, just so everyone kind of comes in and is thinking similar things. I think that's a really good point. And I, I, you, you're touching on something I think a lot of us feel, which is that it's like, ah, why uh, did you wait till the deadline to have this conversation when you should have had it two months ago when it's a lot easier to fix? Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, everyone's feelings don't get hurt in here. That's mm. the, you know, um, the worst is when you can tell uh, a client is upset not with you, but with their band members. And, the st- you know, a lot of how studios, you know, at least sessions go is based off vibe. And um, when the band just is all sour with one another, it, uh, I don't know, it doesn't always go as smoothly as it could. A, a, a thousand percent agreed. So what's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? Okay, so this will be kind of just like the opposite. The best thing um, bands have done, especially recently in the past five years, is demo songs themselves. And I've had bands bring in pretty fucking awesome demos, even where I've been like, hey, let's use some of this. Like, uh, there's parts of the demos where I'm like, yeah, that, uh, you know, that random sample you used there or that percussion track or that loop or, or anything. Um, I'm like, yeah, let's use that loop. Like, that's part of the song now. And I think it helps just kind of flesh out some of the ideas and it also is cool to you know have the song uh, imagined and you know so i i can hear it how they imagine it and i can kind of do some mental pre-production before they get here it's always cool for me when a band shows up and i already know every chord of the song and i already know all the changes and the tempo and i already kind of have a map in pro tools and i already kind of have things up and running because they show up and it's just like a seamless ready to go like okay here's the progression here's um you know any sort of things that i think are kind kind of weird let's take a look at it and so it just expedites the whole process and I, yeah i think demoing things is just the best thing a band can really do nice so what happens when you and a band disagree about something so of course my main goal is to always keep the client happy and i will always give a strong opinion if i really disagree with something i'll say hey this is how i feel strongly about this if you still disagree i'm absolutely fine with going their way um unless it's something that i think really really is detrimental to the song i have absolutely no issue um making compromises or or just full-on um doing something that i don't agree with you know just as long as the band um is happy or the client is happy. Yeah. I mean, I really, uh, I'll give a strong opinion, but if they still disagree with it, um, there's nothing I can do there. And, uh, I don't, you know, I want them to be happy with it. These songs are immortalized forever. And, uh, if, if they're going to listen to them more than I will. So yeah, as long as they're happy, I, I'm, I'm willing to, to budge any way that I need to. Nice. So let's get into how you feel about some of the modern production tools. Do amp simulators dash reamping have a role in your production? Yes. Like extremely heavily. So in a few different respects, though, um, amp simulators in the sense that 
a lot of times I'm doing scratch tracks, um, and I don't really see a need to mic up an amp just for, you know, a scratch track. And so, yeah, I use amp simulators uh, on the fly really quickly all the time like that. Um, and sometimes um, I even end up, some you know, using some of those in, in end recordings, um, you know, or in the final track. And I also, if I'm almost done with a song, and sometimes I'll be at home or something where I have a little studio set up, but uh, if I'm almost done with a song and I've already reamped a bunch of guitars or uh, already, you know, actually tracked the guitars, mic'd up and everything, uh, if I need to add a lead guitar part or or just something small that I know I can make sound great with an amp sim, I, I, I do it. A lot of it to me with the amp sims is impulse responses. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the key, at least for me, to making them sound as good as they possibly can sound. And, um, you know, I, I definitely have tried about every kind that you can possibly buy these days, but uh, the own hammer impulse impulse responses seem to be the winners for me and they just sound um, as good as as good as an impulse response can sound in my opinion very rad how about sample dash midi drums in your productions so similar thing with the amp sims um, for pre-production sometimes i'll sample drums very very rarely will i or um, i'm sorry program drums for pre-production and very very rarely will i ever end up using programmed drums in a track generally i'll just have a session player come in or anything really but yeah actually recently about a month ago i did like a super pop punk kind of track we ended up using some program drums and it sounds super great so yeah i mean i i think i just I, I use whatever i need to to get the job done these days a lot of times i'm turning hits into midi and then using like battery to trigger some samples or or ssd or a number of different things um but yeah, I, I use anything that I think is necessary. Um, I'm kind of big on tuning drums to the key of the song. So mm -hmm. sam samples, I have to you know tune them to the key of the song as well. So I'm, I'm pretty particular about things. And I try not to make things sound particularly oversampled. So um, it's always in, I'm using them to augment something that's already there rather than fully replace. But yeah, I use them often and uh, I use loops all the time um, and add loops over drums. Um, I mean, some of the stuff I'm working on is like super pop stuff that doesn't have real drums and it's all, you know, samples and loops and things like that. So, but yeah, in, in concerns to real drums, you know, I always like to mic up a kit and uh, if I need to sample something later on, yeah, just whatever I need to do to make the song sound as good as it as it needs to be. Not afraid to use anything though. Nice. How about favorite soft sense? Okay. I definitely use absinthe and massive often. I know my way around expand like the back of my hand. And if I can't get something done with those three, I think there's an issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I use them often. I also make a lot of my own sounds or I, I tend to, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, in absinthe and massive, there's like a mutate function. So yes. if I find a sound that I, yeah, I kind of like the sound, but I don't want to just use something that's exactly just like tone that anyone can get. I'll mutate it a couple times, see where it goes from there. Um, and then, I, you know, obviously use tons of filters and just tons of post uh, processing on it. But um, those three are my main go-tos. And I used to have a Juno that I used to record just, you know, straight up record all the time. Um, and it just wasn't getting used as much and it, the convenience factor. So I really kind of have switched over mostly to soft synths. And yeah, I definitely use them all the time. Very cool. Do you master your own records? I do. If I'm mixing the record, then I'm mastering it. And I'd say right now um, it's about 50-50 me mixing things 
and other people mixing my records. I kind of have a thing going where I, I use this. I, I work with a guy named Ralph Patlin, and if it's like a rock mix, not necessarily like pop rock, but if it's like a you know organic rock mix, um, he's doing a lot of the mixing. And then there's another guy who lives here in Phoenix that I know you did a podcast with, Matt Keller. Yes, good guy. And if it's a yeah, he is a cool guy and a friend of mine. And uh, if it's a pop mix, supposed to be just if it's supposed to be like super modern, super. Um, up front and, and loud as can be. Um, Matt does a lot of the mixing for that kind of stuff. And yeah, and if, and if something doesn't work out um, with either of them, sometimes I'll mix it and um, yeah, it just kind of depends. But if, if I'm mastering or if I'm mixing the record, I'm definitely mastering it and I'm kind of a mixing into the mastering for sure. Nice. Hi, I'm going to just take one second to tell you about something that if you're listening to this podcast, you will probably be interested in. Noise Creators put out a book called The 30-Minute Guide to Getting More Fans. It's by me, Jesse Cannon. I wrote a book called Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business that's been one of the best-selling books on how to build a fan base for your band. That book is really long and detailed. What we decided to do, though, is make a smaller version of that book that you can read in under 30 minutes that tells you all about how you can build a fan base for your band. I'm sure you've noticed there's been far too many people popping up in your Facebook news feed slinging information on how to build a fan base for a subscription or $100 or something, but Noise Creators was founded because we saw the potential to make the music world a better place. When I started writing about the music business over eight years ago, I always wanted to just teach all the bands that I thought had potential how to do this because I saw too many bands not build themselves up that I thought were the world should hear. So this book has all that knowledge that I learned building fan bases for bands, producing and working in the music business for years. I managed a bunch of successful bands in the past, and this is how I got them to be more than a band that just their hometown knew about. So if you head over to noisecreators.com under the more tab that says ebook, you can get it there for free. All you have to do is enter your email address or your Twitter address. Thanks for taking the time to check this out. So how long does it usually usual case scenario take you to track a song and what's the usual case to mix a song okay if we're taking out pre-production time you can you know, talk about that too okay okay so generally i like i like to give us if the, if we got three or four songs and i know that the uh songs need some pre-production i like to give us at least a day or two just for pre-production just to really get in there and uh, make sure everything is as good as it can be and i like to you know work on lyrics at that point um you know, not perseverate on anything and not get, you know, too caught up in time. But yeah, I like to really get in there, not be too worried about time, which is why I don't charge by the hour. Mm. Because I just don't, I just don't want people to uh, worry about time. And, you know, the studios that charge a hundred bucks an hour and someone goes pee and it just cost them six bucks. I, I just don't like that um, mentality, especially just especially for the artist, just having to worry too much about time and money. But uh, I generally would say with pre-production, with tracking, um, it's probably about a day and a half a song. And it, obviously, the more songs you're doing, it gets less and less time. If I'm cutting five songs of drums, five songs of bass, five songs of yes. guitar, it you know, starts to go down, which is great. Um, but if it's just one song, I would say tracking maybe uh, two days, sometimes three, depends on how involved the song is. And um, I'm also a fan of if the band has time and I have time not killing ourselves and not working 15 hour days. I think you can start to lose creativity if you are working 
too much and you kind of start to lose perspective so nice give me how long uh though for mixing too oh mixing if i know that i'm going to be mixing the project i am constantly mixing in the middle of the tracking process i'm you know adding adding delays um doing eq moves um really kind of going at it so if i if i am mixing something um i would say it's probably about 80 percent of the way there by the time we're done tracking I also do all of my vocal edits during tracking, so I'll have them cut a ver or you know cut the verses and say, hey, take a 20-minute break, and I'll edit all the verses and you know comp them, pitch correct them, and uh, time time correct them if it needs needs to be done. So yeah, everything is pretty much done by the time they leave, and uh, I would say maybe it'll take me three or four hours to finish a mix if I one, once it's kind of ready to mix for sure. Very rad. So uh, what's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? You know, definitely when I was younger, I loved all the Feldman records. And I mm. remember uh, just kind of reading in an interview that um, sometimes his vocal sessions got a little bit heated where he'd be like, no, you're you're not doing it. You're not doing it. And he, he would uh, kind of there was he d does this whole thing uh, in an interview where he was talking about he was throwing pots and pans at Bert. Mm -hmm. When they were when they were doing a tracking session and he was getting so angry that he ended up just doing an amazing vocal take that was full of like real angst and emotion. And so I remember at that point kind of realizing that being a producer and um, that sometimes it's like being like a psychiatrist almost like you kind of got to pull, pull emotions out of people and you need to, you know, kind of uh, push performances out of them that they don't think are possible. And uh, that's, you know, I remember when I was reading that, that's when I really kind of decided that I was going to take the fifth Beatle approach and dive in and just fully invest myself into the band. Nice. Can you tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio? Sure. Okay. This was one a long time ago. It's so almost 10 years ago. Uh, I was 16 and uh, I was still cutting uh, records just in my bedroom, in my walk, you know, I had a kind of a small walk-in closet I was using as a vocal booth. This was, so I'm from Phoenix, obviously, and um, there's a band here, you know, from from here called The Main. Mm -hmm. And this was when The Main just got signed to Warner and they had just done a record with Howard Benson and they came back to Phoenix and uh, they said, hey, uh, we need someone to record two two acoustic songs that are going to go on the deluxe edition and come out on Warner. And I was like, heck yeah, let's do it. And, you know, being 16, I was like, this is awesome. And it was just a cool moment having them in there just after working with Howard Benson, um, like the juxtaposition between mm -hmm. them working in this awesome studio with Howard Benson and then me in my teenage room. And yeah, we cut two, two acoustic songs that ended up on the deluxe edition that came out on Warner and I was 16. And uh, just in the, you know, super basic bedroom. And it was just I remember having a moment of like, wow, this is like crazy that, you you know, you can make stuff that comes out on, you know, gets to a lot of people, people's ears just in a bedroom with an M box. And and uh, we had all of them crammed into my little closet doing gang vocals. And yeah, that was those were the those were the fun times for sure. And that that's just a cool experience for to look back on. Nice. How about one of the worst moments and what you learned from it? The worst, a couple of the worst moments I would say is, especially, I'm sure this this one event happened probably about eight years ago or so, but I had a band break up in the studio. Oh, fun. And yeah, that was great. But what kind of happened is kind of like what I had mentioned earlier, where they were 
going, I, you know, someone said, I don't like this song and I don't even know why we're playing this style of music. And they're having these grand arguments, you know, right in front of me. And I kind of tried to be the mediator. Um, and, you know, I wasn't worried about the money or losing the session or anything. I just said, hey, you know, let's make music we're all happy with. And, uh, you know, they just couldn't agree. They ended up breaking up kind of like right before my eyes. And it ended up working out that particular session. I ended up doing some solo songs for the singer. But I, I learned that before a band comes in, I always have a meeting with them. Yes. And I say, is, ev- is, is everyone on the same page? How does everyone feel about the songs? And I, and I kind of look at all of them separately and say, like, now is the time to say, like, if you don't like the song, say it now because we, our session's in a month and we got a month, a whole month to, to rewrite a song if we need to, to write a new song, to, uh, you know, to just talk about all the things that need to be talked about. So I learned that was a very valuable lesson for me, just learning that and coming to grips with the fact that, you know, we're kind of trying to, as producers manage a bunch of people's feelings kind of in a way. And, um, yeah, I'll never forget that lesson. And I, and now, like I said, I have meetings with every band and just, I make sure that everyone's on the same page and feels good about what's going on. Nice. So let's get into your personal tastes a little bit. What is a perfect record someone else has made and what about it makes it perfect? There's two kinds of perfect records, I guess. There's ones that I can listen to without listening for like oh that that should have been high past a little bit more or oh this is way too squashed or oh that really sounds like autotune and a record for me that i can just listen to is john mayer continuum that album just everywhere i listen to it it just sounds great like his you know guitar comping in between vocals and stuff is insane um everything just feels so so good and I don't necessarily love that genre of music, but that particular album um, is just just awesome. Um, I mean, I just I can listen to it all the way through and not think about anything other than the song. And then there's other kind of perfect albums that sound um, they're perfect in a in a more rough way, like a leftover crack album or something. <laughs> but, uh, wh- wh- uh, which one? Which one of those? I, I'm trying. This is like I'm going way back to my childhood, so I can't I can't remember the exact name of the album. But mm. um, I, I I can just listen to them in a different way, almost like I listen to like a Ramones album or something, where where it's 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 I get so captivated by like the rawness yes. and like just in, intensity of it that I actually just lose touch of you know any sort of technical thing that I can listen to you know and then there's a, it's always just that funny thing like, to me it's like you know so I did um, the last two leftover crack records and it's like all I hear is the flaws it's like oh. I'm like ah oh, this is what I would have done different and like you're talking about that thing of like I really identified with you with what you just said of like to me a lot of the time a perfect record is like that thing of like oh I can listen to this and not think about changing it it's like I can just appreciate it and it's like you know, all I hear on those records is like, oh, I wish I could do this different. I'm also jealous of people being able to leave flaws in because I always find myself um, going, oh, this could be more perfect, then I'll fix it. Or, oh, I should, I can, I can, you know, cut some of the noise out of this guitar. Or, oh, I can do this. But then I hear records where they didn't. And I'm like, that sounds great. Like, mm-hmm. and, and just having, um, and I have done records where I've consciously said, you know, what, I'm not going to cut the noise out of this. I'm not going to, uh, you know, align every vocal with vocal line. I, I'm going to let things be loose. And sometimes I listen back on them and go, this sounds raw and this sounds great. Um, mm. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm jealous of the people that can do that on a regular basis because I definitely try to sometimes get in there with a fine tooth comb. But, yeah, John Mayer Continuum, and, and that, that's one for me that I can just kind of listen to. Nice. So 
Give me five of your favorite records in how they shaped your ma- musical growth. Keep in mind, I guess my age here. So I'm twenty. I'm twenty five. So Fall Out Boy's "Take This to Your Grave." Mm-hmm. It's was a great record. He- yeah, it was huge for me. I remember. I mean, um, I mean, I think that really shaped my melodic sensibility and just all the um, ad lib and counter contrapuntal melody kind of stuff that they did. And, you know, overlapping vocals without, you know, stepping on each other and all of that kind of stuff. It really was a huge thing for me in middle school and early high school. And I love, love, loved that record. And I remember at one point thinking, oh, my God, this is the best sounding snare drum. This is the best sounding kick drum. Everything sounds so great. And now when I listen to it, I go, OK, it doesn't sound as good as I used to think it does. <laughs> but the, the the songs are so, so great. Yes. Um, and uh, so that album really did some cool things for me. And I think stylistically, that album really stuck with me. And I still subconsciously reference that in my mind a lot. Another one that I kind of had in the list was the John Mayer Continuum. But we kind of talked about that. Yep. It's just I, I can listen to it. That was kind of eye opening as far as guitar comping and things like small little flourishes in between vocals. And um, just that was a cool record for me, just knowing, uh, learning, you know, how to lay back that things should be behind the beat in certain places. And that was a cool record for me just listening to and and, um, kind of realizing how much feel and how much, um, you know, not playing is almost just as good as playing at some at some spots. I like that. And so another one here at the risk of sounding cliche for me is uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, that's a commonly cited one because it's one of the best made records ever. It's just perfect. And yeah, some of the guitar sounds and their use of like almost like sampling going on in money and time. I mean, yeah, just that record was pretty serious for me. Um also, every Leonard Skinner record ever. I, my dad listened to kind of Southern rock stuff growing up or when I was growing up. So I, I just kind of just remember like all that, like Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner and Joe Cocker and all, all that kind of stuff playing in the car growing up. So just I think it's kind of just in my head. Um, mm. But I love love those kind of records. Um, another one is that's a more recent one is the Foo Fighters Wasting Light. I love that record. I think especially for being cut to tape, it is so tight and it sounds so good. The drums sound so not sampled that they're just awesome. And that was a cool one, like a, a more recent cool one for me. I, I love that record. And kind of in a similar vein where we were talking about it just sounds so raw that I can just listen to the songs is uh, Them Crooked Vultures, the self-titled mm. Them Crooked Vultures record. I love that record. I, I think this was maybe in 2009, but I saw them at Coachella, the one and only Coachella I ever went to, and it was the loudest concert I've ever been to. It was so, so, so loud, but I'll never forget Them Crooked Vultures. Yeah, they, they killed it live, and that kind of made the record even better for me. But every once in a while, I'll still pop that record in, and it just sounds so authentically them that it's hard for me to deny uh, how good it sounds. I definitely agree. That record authentic, I think is a great word for that. How about your three favorite producers? A a super big inspiration for me with especially all the vocal production stuff is Mutt Lang. Mm. His vocal production and his just sensibility in writing um, is just insane to me, at least all the way from the death leopard stuff, all the way to Shania Twain. I just, I don't think, at least to me, I don't think he's done a bad-sounding record. No. Um, and, uh, 
Yeah, he's the first person I heard of being like super neurotic and like EQing certain words differently mm-hmm. and like EQing like syllables like different than the next one. And I find myself doing that often. And I feel like he was the first person where I was like reading about all being all like more nitpicky than me and more like neurotic. And so, yeah, I definitely relate to him in some sense. And I kind of just aspire to be on his level as far as vocal production and 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 his he sings a lot on these records and and mm-hmm. i hear him i hear him all over the shania twain stuff and yeah yeah he's he just is a great singer and really knows exactly what he's going after and he's not willing to settle for anything less so i definitely appreciate that um yeah it's one of those things one- like once you know his voice and where it is that it's like uh you're like, oh, okay, that's him singing on this too. Exactly. Or like, oh, he practically is a Shania Twain record. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I yeah, he's just kind of the man, and I just really respect everything he's done musically for sure. Another person um, that we already kind of touched on is just John Feldman. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember everyone who came into when I was first working in high school and stuff on records. Everyone was like, I want my snare to sound like this. I want my kick drum to sound like this. I want my guitars to sound like this. And this was always a John Feldman record. And He's done some of my favorite records, especially records, you know, that I look back on and are like nostalgic about. And I think, yeah, he he was definitely, to me, at least on the forefront of kind of like the um, auto-tune, melodyne, vocal-lined, beat detective, drum sampling. Like he was he was kind of like some of the first records that I really heard that were capitalizing on every single one of those tools and making a record that just sounded larger than life and almost unrealistically good, if that makes sense. And I mean that as the biggest compliment ever. Like, they sound great. Some, You know, there's always the argument of the purists and all that kind of stuff. But uh, to me, those records just sound great. And he utilized all the tools that I use and, um, you know, now everyone is using on a daily basis. Totally. Who else? Uh, Last person I have is Max Martin. Nice. Uh, I growing up on like the Disney soundtracks and you know my parents were divorced so my mom always listened to the super poppy stuff and my dad listened to the more like gritty southern rock stuff but I always have an ear or always have a some sort of an affinity towards really pop music and even producing um I love to record just straight up pop songs um and Max Martin is the the Mount Everest of pop he's this as big as it gets yeah and uh so many things he's done just are, again, things that I can just listen to and only think about how just great the song is. Do you read that really long article that came out about him like two, three weeks ago? I didn't. Where Where was it at? Uh, if you Google Swedish article, but like, you know, he doesn't grant interviews. Uh, this oh, is yeah, like his yeah. first one in like, I think they said like 15 years. It's really good. I mean, it takes like a half hour to read it so long. I'm into it. That sounds yeah. like something I'm willing to read. Yeah, it's really good. I'll try to find it and I, uh, email you with it. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I uh, I have done more Googling and research of Max Martin than I would even like to admit <laughs> and tried to find every time he ever spoke on camera ever. It's hard. And have you read uh, The Song Machine? No, I haven't. That so that book has a lot about him and in like a lot of good interviews with it. It's it's a really I listened to an audiobook and it's like literally the worst read audiobook I've ever heard. But it, like and then I read some <laughs> of it uh, on paper. You're like, oh no, this is actually a good book. It's just done terribly on audiobook, but it's really good. That's awesome. I have to absolutely uh, the song machine you said. Yes, John Seabrook. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I uh, I am 
always um, YouTubing and Googling and gear slutting and everything that I can. And yeah, Max is just awesome. And, and kind of in under his umbrella, I would put Dr. Luke mm-hmm. a little bit just in a similar vein. Um, I think he's definitely the reason why I have a TG2. Mm. Um, they were talking about, the, you know, their 1073 broke and they used a TG2 and they liked it more. Yep. And uh, so I was like, oh, that sounds great. Let's try one. Um, and I, I love the TG2. Um, yeah, it's a great spe- piece. Especially on guitar. That and a Royer is like, I could do a record with just a TG2 and a Royer. And obviously I put up a 57 and some other stuff just for funsies. But if I had to just pick one thing, TG2 and a Royer and a nice nice cab is just essentially all you need. Nice. So what's a record that's been really inspiring you lately? Ooh, okay. One record that I... I this is kind of a departure from everything I've talked about thus far, um, is a Marin Morris record. She's a country singer. It's super pop country, but uh, it was produced by this guy named Busby. Mm-hmm. It's just a really nice sounding country pop record that is super tasteful and the vocal comping is awesome. All the playing and the feel is, to me, it's like almost like a top, it could be like top 40 pop songs, but instead of like, super syncing things up to the grid and using a bunch of um, virtual instruments, they just actually had people play stuff. And it like it rings the pop bell in my mind, but also makes me feel like real people are playing. And uh, it's just a cool juxtaposition to what's coming out these days. It's like pop, but you know, there's some serious human elements going on in it. Um, so yeah, that, that record has been a cool one for me recently. My girlfriend would definitely probably say that i listen to it too often um, <laughs> but yeah that that record and um i just uh, recently happened to see x ambassadors live mm. and uh the singer who was doing the whole sax thing um mm-hmm. and the whole live looping and his voice was just great and it kind of helped me rediscover a little bit of that and then shameless plug for the the new john mayer uh wave two that just came out uh still feel like your man that song is one of the sickest songs I've heard recently and masterfully recorded. And some of the guitar licks are just awesome. Very, very rad. Um, so the last question is, is uh, what have you been working on lately? Do a little self-promotion. Nice. Okay. Well, super recently, I've just been working on a band called Sundressed uh, that just mm-hmm. got signed to Anim- Animal Style Records. Uh, shout out to Trevor and the boys. That was a really cool record for me because um, I wrote the whole record with them and then uh, played a bunch of instruments on it. And so I feel super involved in that record. I was also kind of at that point exper- kind of experimenting with um, reactive load boxes for recording guitar uh like a sur reactive load and uh i cut cut a lot of the guitars at my apartment with a cranked up jmp and a cranked up bogner shiva at Mm. at two in the morning into a reactive load box and no one heard anything but it sounds great so yeah that one has a cool cool feel for me i also it's funny i finished this record like six months ago but the first single just got released a really good friend of mine named steph keppen um and her band steph keppen and the articles they just released a the single and they're about to release a full-length album and um i'm super proud of it it's 
stylistically just different than things that are coming out right now. There's no guitar. Well, there's guitar sparsely on the record, but it's mostly piano, drums, and a full string section. And it was just a gnarly record to make, and I'm super proud of it. And Steph is an amazing vocalist, and it's always fun working with her. And uh, I can sing a harmony, and she can get it right the first time. She is just very intuitive and very talented. And then uh, uh, something I just did really recently is a band called Wives, Mm -hmm. uh, W. Y-V-E-S, and they came in, and I mean, I guess first off, the, the band is just amazing. They all are in, insane players, and they came in, and uh, they cut bass, basically like the, the foundation of the song. They cut it live. They all played live, um, which is just doesn't happen as much anymore, and luckily the studio is totally equipped to handle it, um, and uh, they just shredded hard, and, and uh, their vocalist, Corey Gloden, he just is like a real, real vocalist. I mean, he just is so authentically awesome that when he opens his mouth, it's like, oh my God, that's coming from his face. Like, that sounds so awesome. I mean, he's one of the first singers, I I mean, that I can think of or that happened in a while that I just didn't even touch autotune. I just didn't even consider, I didn't even consider opening up autotune or Melodyne or Wavestune or any of the things I use all the time. He just is so authentically awesome and real. So yeah, that, that Wive song, Jump Into the Water, is awesome. And I'm super glad to be a part of that. And, um, you know, I, I helped with the arrangement slightly and, and uh, kind of tweaked a couple of things with um, minor little parts. But essentially they came in and they were so, so, so prepared and they, they were just ready to rock. Um, and they all just are amazing musicians. And then the last thing, uh, I've been working um, on some more pop stuff, like not pop rock, but super like modern pop for a guy named Chad Rubin, uh, who's local here. And uh, he's got a cool voice and definitely some cool stuff um, that I've been working on with him. It's it's a cool, um, to be a little bit away from, you know, super, you know, recording live instruments. And it, it's nice to jump in and, you know, just have a, have a thing, different uh, kind of feel for a change. So going from wives to a Chad Rubin thing um, is always cool for me just to kind of mix things up and not get, you know, stale on a genre. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.